So I guess we better get started. The sooner we start, the, the quicker we can be out of here. Um, good morning. Uh, my name is Marian Tupi. I'm a uh, senior policy analyst here at the Cato Institute uh, in the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. I'm also the editor of uh, Human Progress, uh, which is a website uh, devoted to uh, documenting the improving state of humanity. Uh, which is certainly not uh, the subject of uh, today's uh, policy forum. Since I came to Cato uh, 17 years ago, uh, we've held many, many events on Zimbabwe. I have written dozens of op-eds, uh, conducted dozens of uh, interviews uh, on the subject uh, of Zimbabwe uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that I fell in love with the country in 1993 when I first visited uh, Zimbabwe. Um, and I cared very much about the well-being of its uh, people, many of whom have become my friends over time. Uh, but also, uh, I wanted to document uh, what was happening in Zimbabwe because it was a real-life uh, uh, experiment in alternative economics, um, to put it in quotation marks. Um, expropriation without compensation of commercial farmers, indigenization program for domestic companies, uh, hyperinflation to pay government bills. All of these have taken place uh, since uh, 2000 when uh, Zimbabwe, under the, under, the, under the rule of the former president Robert Mugabe, uh, really took a downward turn for the worse. So today the results of uh, Zimbabwe's uh, experiment with alternative economics are in. The economy is in ruins. Tens of thousands of people have died due to hunger, disease, or uh, government terrorism, and millions have fled the country. Thankfully, the government seems to be slowly realizing that in order to prosper, you have to have the rule of law. You have to have property rights you have to have economic competition, and you have to have free trade with the rest of the world. In the last few weeks, we have seen the government announce that compensation will be paid to the farmers who were dispossessed, that indigenization laws will be repealed, and the domestic currency, well, here the story gets a little more complicated, so I'm glad that Steve Hanke is here. The, the domestic currency, which was abolished, uh, appears to be uh, making sort of a comeback, but we'll, we'll talk uh, more about that. And of course, the Zimbabwean government is now appealing to the diaspora to return back into the country. So there, is a, there are riches of wisdom to be learned from what happened in Zimbabwe over the last 20 years. Regrettably, these lessons are being completely ignored south of the Lompopo, where the South African Marxist government is on its way to repeat almost exactly the same mistakes that Zimbabwe has made. There are moves afoot to nationalize the central bank with a view, undoubtedly, of printing easy money. There is a promise to change the constitution in order to enable the government to expropriate without compensation the commercial farmers in that country. And of course, the country is experimenting with very strict racial quotas in business and in government. So Zimbabwe continues to be relevant. 
not just for the sake of its own people, but also for the sake of other African countries uh, who are trying to decide what kind of economic and political arrangements they should follow in order to become prosperous in the world in the future. To start us off today um, will be a longtime Africa hand, uh, Barry Wood, uh, who was in Zimbabwe in January when the post-Mugabe government uh, brutally cracked down on dissent, killing several protesters and arresting hundreds. He was both, he was both in Harare and Bulawayo on his fourth visit to Zimbabwe since 2010. Barry began journalism uh, for the Financial Mail, South Africa's most widely read business weekly. During three years in Southern Africa, he was in Mozambique for its declaration of independence and Soweto on the first day, day of the 1976 uprising. He traveled often to what was then Rhodesia and returned to Zimbabwe in 1987. Barry was the chief uh, uh, economist correspondent or economics correspondent at Voice of America for two decades, spending three years in Prague uh, leading uh, Voice of America's coverage of the transition of Central and Eastern European uh, economies from communism or central planning to capitalism. He currently writes uh, on global finance and the economy for RTHK in Hong Kong, also for BizNews and MoneyWeb in South Africa. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Times, Financial Times, Barron's International Economy, and so on. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the podium, Barry Wood. Thank you, Marion. It's, it's a real honor to be at Cato and to talk about Zimbabwe. And uh, I want to acknowledge uh, Ambassador from Zimbabwe and also the finance minister of Zimbabwe. It's an honor that you have chosen to come to our presentation, Mr. Nkube. Thank you. I also want to begin by calling attention to the disaster that struck Zimbabwe, and particularly Mozambique, in March 15th, 14th of this year, in which a 1,000 people are dead, a million people displaced, horrific economic destruction. It's a real tribute to the United States AID that they have, despite sanctions, which have nothing to do with humanitarian relief, produced so much assistance to the people, particularly in Baira. And the whole Baira corridor that goes into Zimbabwe, which is vital for Zimbabwe. Also, the Chinese have been active, the British have been active, the South Africans, etc. So. This is a great tragedy we should keep in mind. I want to uh, just identify a bit about Zimbabwe and, and then leave you with three messages only. And they are, first of all, that Zimbabwe is an important country that is exceedingly rich, with rich human resources, a fine educational system that has persisted through the Mugabe years, and it is a welcoming country that is particularly connected to both the United States, South Africa, and Europe. That's the first message. And when I say rich, this is a country that has platinum 
It has lithium. It has coal. It has diamonds. And that's why there are six flights per day between Johannesburg and Harare. Investors want into this country. And the challenge that's going on in Zimbabwe now is how do you emerge from 37 years of the Mugabe government? Mr. Mugabe is now 95. He's in Singapore for medical treatment. He was deposed in November of 2017. The second message is that tragic mismanagement, particularly in the last 17 years of the Mugabe government, left the Zimbabwe people impoverished, in which what had been a food exporting country became not only a food importer, but three quarters of the population are food aid dependent, and they have lost perhaps a fifth of their population. There are four million Zimbabweans in South Africa. And this is a country of 17 million in Zimbabwe. So the descent into poverty has pervaded everything. And you have now a country in which the average wage is about $300 per month. So this is a real problem. And the third message is that there are no easy solutions. When you've dug a hole that deep, it doesn't require a very quick response to get out. It takes time. And I want to end with two presentations of what's going on in terms of whether the West should engage with Zimbabwe or not. Look, it all goes back to 1965 and Ian Smith. Ian Smith declared independence for the white settlers in 1965. That brought him into conflict with Britain. That went on until 1980. But the war in Zimbabwe cost 30,000 lives. So this was a very severe conflict. And the scars of that continue. It is also true that shortly after independence in 1980, then there was a terrible genocide, some say, in the area around Bulawayo, where the Ndebeles are, in which it is said that 15,000 people died. And the principal perpetrators, it is said with some considerable evidence, were the current president, Mr. Edison Manangagwa, and the head of the army today. Look, the first 20 years of independence were pretty good. <laughs> Zimbabwe remained pretty much on course. But beginning in 2000, because it was perceived that the white farmers and the white community generally, which numbered as many as 150,000, now it's down to a couple thousand now, were supporting the opposition. So then began the land seizures. And of course, a food exporting country became a food importer. So that really is the beginning. And what you saw then was the population decline. You saw a 40% drop in GDP over a 10-year period. You saw increasingly oppressive one-party rule, cronyism, corruption, freedoms were curtailed, the media, etc. This all led to, in 2001, the United States Congress passing ZIDERA, which is quite pertinent today. That is the Zimbabwe, 
Zimbabwe defense and uh, what is it? The Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act. Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act. Some would say it's having just the opposite effect. That was passed by the Congress, and what it did was it put it as many as a couple hundred people, preventing them, including the current president, Mr. Manangagwa, from coming to the United States. So this led then to the IMF canceling any kind of relationship with Zimbabwe in 2002, and the Commonwealth, sorry, in 2002, the Commonwealth expelled or suspended Zimbabwe. Now Zimbabwe wants to get back in. 2003, the International Monetary Fund, because of heavy arrears, canceled any kind of cooperation with Zimbabwe. The country is heavily indebted. As I said, they lost 4 million people to South Africa, and 75% are living below the poverty line. All of this disaster culminated with the hyperinflation of 2008. And let me just go through a couple slides. This is Mr. Mugabe. I put this plaque up from the train station. I took this photo. This was in 1983. He was prime minister then, in which Mr. Mugabe was, you know, commemorating the or inaugurating the electrification of the rail line between Guelo, Gueru, and Harare. That's about 250 miles. But of course, look what happened. The copper wires were pilfered, and there is no train service to speak of anywhere in Zimbabwe, and they rely heavily on truck traffic. Then here's the hyperinflation of 2008. Steve will talk about all this financial and economic distress, but there you saw that is a $100 trillion note. It's not surprising, therefore, that people rejected the currency. So when the country dollarized under a brief period of, you could say, real democracy, 2009 to 2013, there was economic recovery. So that went on pretty well. But then after 2013, things ran out again. So look, I was in January in both cities, as, as Marion mentioned. Zimbabwe's broke. It has no money at all. All of these rich resources, investors stay away because they're afraid of what's going on. There is no land security, even though the indigenization law, which meant that a majority ownership had to be in Zimbabwe hands, has been largely repealed, except for platinum. Investors want in. Bond notes were issued, a kind of funny money, in 2016. The finance minister in the first row, he has the task of dealing with this problem. And then you see that EcoCash, now there's Mr. Manangagwa, who is the current president. He's 75 years old, and he has said very openly, Zimbabwe is open for business. And that's the question. Is it really? And certainly the appointment of Mr. Nkube, I'm sorry I don't have a better photo there. Um, these are the transport lines. There you see the Baira to Harare rail line and road. That's vital. And it's been recovered. The fuel pipeline is open again. But there are tremendous shortages of fuel, basic wheat, maize meal, etc. Then you see the rail line to Maputo that goes up. And then 300 miles, really, from Pretoria, Johannesburg, up to Arai by truck and then the rail line that goes back to Cecil Rhodes time that goes through Botswana up to Bulawayo. So this is really 
what I want to do. And by the way, part of the reason that the coup took place was the desperation of the people. And probably the Mugabe years were maintained because of the discovery of diamonds. But it is thought that corruption and army control of the diamonds really prolonged the misery of the people, but also enriched the ruling elite. So here's the question. Here's the case for engagement. Sanctions have failed to achieve their goals. Have they? Have they? Maybe they have. Maybe they haven't. Then we have um, certainly Zidara, which is still on the books, hasn't been extended by President Trump. Do they hurt the poor more than the ruling elite? There's a strong case that the sanctions do hurt the poor more than they hurt the ruling elite, which through corruption gets around the sanctions. Market-based reforms are likely to fail without international assistance. But let's not forget what's going on here. The United States, through Zadera, has a veto power in the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Therefore, no money can go from the IMF. The arrears, by the way, have been cleared, so that's not a problem. They have other arrears, but that's being taken care of. But they can't do anything unless the United States says, OK, we have a 17% share of the votes in the IMF. 85% would be necessary to have an IMF financial program. They do have a staff-monitored program. Then, it is thought that Manangagwa is far more liberal than the ZANU-PF hardliners who would succeed him. And that's really a key question. The business community, South Africa, and most Western donors want Manangagwa and Mr. Nkube to succeed. And they can't succeed without assistance goes that argument. And foreign investors want in, but they won't come in unless they get Western approval. Now, here's the case for not engaging. ZANU-PF is hopelessly corrupt. The aid money would simply be stolen. There's evidence that would give credence to that. The January crackdown, in which 15 people were killed at least, several hundred arrested, this is after a disputed election, which was probably, in the words of some people, the fairest election that Zimbabwe had had in July. There was also a crackdown then. But the one in January really shocked people. And that revealed how brutal and oppressive the government is. ZANU-PF is determined to hold power at all costs. Those are the words of the former United States ambassador to Zimbabwe, who says there should not be engagement on that account because ZANU-PF simply will not give up power. And it is said that Mr. Nkube, the finance minister, is a front, a very vulnerable man, and that ZANU-PF at its core opposes market-based reform, which is championed, I might say, and it's certainly true, by Mr. Nkube. So we don't know what's really going on. You know, the North Koreans trained the 5th Brigade in Zimbabwe, and that was really part of this Gakuru Hundi massacre back in the early 80s. The North Koreans are still active there. And finally, the government is incompetent and divided, and the reforms won't be implemented. Now, there is the dilemma. And I think on that point, I shall stop. Thank you very much, Barry, for that, uh, for that uh, overview. Um, our second speaker is uh, Steve Hanke. Uh, he's a professor of applied economics and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, 
and the study of business enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He's also a senior fellow and director of Troubled Currencies Project here at the Cato Institute, a senior advisor to the Renmin University of China's International Monetary Research Institute in Beijing, a special counsel to the Center for Financial Stability in uh, New York, and a contributing editor uh, at Central Banking in London, and also a contributor at Forbes. In the past, Professor Hanke taught economics at the University of California, Berkeley. He served as the member of Governor's Council of Economic Advisors in Maryland, a senior econo economist on President Ronald Reagan's Council of uh, Economic Advisors, and as a senior advisor to the Joint Economic Committee of the US Congress between 1984 and 1988. Hanke served as the state counselor to both Republic of Lithuania and Republic of Montenegro. He was also an advisor to the presidents of Bulgaria, Venezuela, before, um, <laughs> long time before Maduro and Chavez destroyed that country, and Indonesia. He played an important role in establishing new currency regimes in Argentina, Estonia, Bulgaria, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Ecuador, Lithuania, and Montenegro. Professor Hanke has also held senior appointments in the governments of many other countries, including Albania, Kazakhstan, United Arab Emirates, and Yugoslavia. With that, please help me welcome Professor Steve Hanke. Do we want to set the timer at zero? It looks like I've lost my time already. I will. Don't worry, I'll tell you. Excellency. Professor Nkube, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be with you and to talk about Zimbabwe. My first introduction to Zimbabwe came in 2007 uh, as the hyperinflation started there. And in 2008, uh, I published my first monograph on Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe Hyperinflation to Growth. It was uh, published and sponsored by uh, a brokerage firm, Amira, in uh, Harare. And since then, I've been quite involved in measuring the hyperinflation in 2008. I think I have the uh, distinction of being the uh, only one to accurately measure the second highest hyperinflation in world history which peaked out in November of 2008 in Zimbabwe. That was published uh, in an article in the Cato Journal in 2009. Also in 2008, uh, as uh, was already indicated, uh, Morgan Sangurai and a group from Zimbabwe came, opposition politicians, to visit the Cato Institute. There have been many other articles uh, uh, that have been written uh, in the Cato Journal uh, about Zimbabwe. So there's a lot of interest about Zimbabwe that's housed or has been housed right here at the Cato Institute. Let me start by beginning uh, a little summary of the state of the economy. Now, Barry did go through some of this, but just to give you an idea, I, I've gone through all the uh, rankings and reports that have been done uh, on these international rankings uh, in terms of economic freedom, corruption, and so forth. 
And if you look at the starting point, we have a very poor country. Uh, according to the IMS World Economic Outlook uh, database, we're at 161 is the rank for Zimbabwe. The nominal GDP per capita is about $1,300 per person. So it's, it's a very poor country. Per person per year. Per, per, per year. Per year, yeah. Per, per capita per year, right. If you look at the global competitiveness report put out by the World Economic Forum, they look at 140 countries, Zimbabwe's 128. The World Bank's doing business report, they look at 190 countries, 155 for Zimbabwe. In that same report, starting a business, uh, this is something Barry mentioned, it's very difficult to start a business in Zimbabwe. Out of the 190 countries covered by the World Bank, Zimbabwe, 176. The Heritage Foundation, Index of Economic Freedom, 180 countries, Zimbabwe, 174. Cato Institute's Human Freedom Index, which Ian Vasquez puts together and directs, 162 countries, Zimbabwe, 142, 143, pardon me. Economic Freedom of the World, the Fraser Institute, which Cato is associated with, 162 countries, Zimbabwe, 127. Corruption, which Barry mentioned, 180 countries, Zimbabwe ranks 160. So I think with that, you get the picture. I mean, if you, if you were patient and taking notes, you can see we're, we're getting down to the, the bottom of the barrel. If you look at the mining sector, the Fraser Institute does a survey of, 100, of 83 countries, and you have Zimbabwe way down at the bottom of the barrel. Now, mining is a, potentially a huge uh, industry and, and uh, could be a, a very dynamic aspect of the economy, but the, the, the ranking in terms of is, is this a desirable place to be if you want to mine, and the answer is no. There are a lot of problems. So the question is, how did Zimbabwe plunge down to these tremendously low levels? And there are four common elements, and I'll go through these in a moment, but to give you the, the top four, we have property rights. Things, as, as, as Marion mentioned, property rights, number one. Two, money. Three, there's no hard budget constraint in Zimbabwe. Uh, and I'll explain a little bit what, what that is. It's, it's basically a situation where you have no discipline, very weak institutions, and, and no one's in control of fiscal affairs. That's, that's what, when you have a soft budget and no hard budget constraint, anything goes basically in the fiscal sphere. And the fourth item, which has been alluded to a little bit with Barry's remarks, is that the dominant political party, ZANA-PF, is, is a party that operates much like an organized criminal syndicate or crime syndicate. So those are the four big ones. Now, let me go through the timeline. 
that I've developed for the plunge. July 2000, and, and, and this one you'll almost have to take notes for because I, I'm going to go very fast through this thing. July 2000, fast-track land reform program that catalyzed the economic uh, downturn. I mean, the plunge really started in July, and this is a property rights issue, so this one's property. Then in March 2007, hyperinflation begins. That's, that's money. Now, what is hyperinflation? There's a lot of confusion about this, but in 1956, Phil Kagan wrote the classic article on hyperinflation. It was in a book that Milton Friedman edited, and the definition has become, as a result of Kagan, 50% per month. Inflation at 50% per month. I modified that slightly now, and the hyperinflation is 50% per month, and it has to be measured 30 consecutive days. We, we can measure now with high-frequency data inflation rates. So 30 consecutive days, all over 50% per month. Uh, now, the, the question is, how, how does this, let me move um, actually back just a second. Let me. This is when it started, you see, March 2007, and see the, the thing zooms up, 89.7, that's sextillion percent. <laughs> I had to look that up myself. I mean, that's a very big number. Uh, that, so that, that was the hyperinflation, and, and this is where it put Zimbabwe at number two with the prices doubling at the peak in November of 2008, just slightly over 24 hours. So every day you had half of the purchasing power of the Zim dollar was being destroyed in 24 hours, a fantastic rate of hyperinflation. Now, the question is, how do you get hyperinflation? And actually, it's fairly easy. Now, Milton Friedman always says inflation everywhere and at all times is a monetary phenomenon. Well, that, that is true, but there's something behind it that kicks it off, and that is a fiscal problem. And, and the fiscal problem simply is that the government runs out of sources of finance to, to finance its government expenditure. So let's go through them. You've got taxes. If, if, the, if those dry up on you, that's a problem. You've got the domestic bond market. If that isn't available, you've got a problem. You've got the international bond market. If that isn't available, you've got a problem. And you've got state-owned enterprises, and if they're not generating free cash flow, <laughs> you've got a problem. So if you have all those problems on top of you, what do you do? You, you go to the central bank, and you tell the central bank to turn on the printing press, to supply credit to the government that has run out of sources of money. So ultimately, hyperinflation is actually a fiscal problem. It's caused by the lack of discipline and the lack of a hard budget constraint on the budget itself. Now, in Yugoslavia, where I, I was an advisor, from 19, January of 1990 until May of 1991, when they decided they were going to have a civil war instead of doing economic reform, uh, 
I measured the hyperinflation in Yugoslavia. That, that was another doozy. We have Yugoslavia at number three behind Zimbabwe, way behind as it turns out. But look at the number. The number over here, 313 million percent per month. So every day and a half, the Yugoslav dinar was losing about 50% of its purchasing power. So anyway, I measured that one. That, that was the first actual hyperinflation that I was able to accurately measure was in Yugoslavia. But in Yugoslavia, at that time, 97% of all the government expenditures were being financed by the central bank. So, so taxes, government bond uh, uh, issuance, uh, and revenue from state-owned enterprises was only accounting for 3% of, of the government expenditures. The rest, <laughs> it was the printing press over at the central bank and, and the lack of any kind of hard budget constraint. So moving ahead, March 2008, uh, the Nation and Economic Empowerment Act which required 51% of the businesses in Zimbabwe to be owned by native, so-called native to Africa uh, residents. That's a property rights issue. Then we come to the end of hyperinflation, which I've already mentioned, November of 2008. That, that's a money problem. Then we had a unity government that started in February of 2009 uh, with Zana uh, PF and, M and the MDC, uh, that Sangurai was leading the troops in. Uh, BT was the, the finance minister, and, and in fact, after the hyperinflation peaked in November and, and people stopped using the Zim dollar, and, and then in, in April of 2009, the government started keeping it, its accounts in U.S. dollars. You had a situation where the new coalition government actually put in a pretty hard budget constraint. And, and what happened? The, 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 the budget started coming into balance and the economy took off. So just, just with that alone, in, in a, an economy that had been essentially destroyed, the economy starts bouncing back. So this is light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the current situation. You do the right things, you get a hard budget constraint in the system, and boom, uh, right away, you're, you're going to get a positive shock. By July of 2013, the coalition government ends, the hard budget is gone, and right away, they're at it again. December 2014, the introduction of bond coins and small denomination government liabilities were issued. That's to help finance the, the government. This is a soft budget constraint coming in. The hard budget constraints start starting to go out. In November of 2016, bond notes are introduced, uh, valued at par, and real-time gross settlements uh, a form of electronic money, shall we say, entered the scene. That's, again, money, hard budget. It's a monetary problem because what happens is that 
the country at that point in time really de-dollarized itself. It was dollarized, operating as a dollarized economy during those coalition years. Now, by November of 2016, it's, it's gone because they, they've issued funny money, phony money, in bond notes and real-time gross settlements. Then September 2017, Zimbabwe has a second hyperinflation. So they have two in, in one decade, less, less than a decade. Now the second hyperinflation, I think, was one of the main points that led to the downfall of Mugabe. I think his, his Achilles heel was the hyperinflation 2008, then bang, it comes back in 2017, and I think that laid the ground for the coup that replaced him. Then in February, I'm jumping ahead. I've got a few items here, but I, I, the, the clock is ticking, uh, and Marion looks like he's also ticking. <laughs> I have one minute. Five. Oh, oh, five. Oh, okay. Hyperinflating you. Uh, okay, yeah, we're. <laughs> <laughs> my, my speaking time is depreciating, depreciating as rapidly as that Zim dollar was. Uh, then to, to get to a, a micro point, in, in February of 2019, the Guaca mine was invaded. This is a property rights issue. Again, these things are, are all property rights, money, hard budget constraint. And, and a political party that dominates that it's fundamentally a, a crime syndicate. And, the, and this gets into the crime syndicate part. If you look at this mine, it was invaded uh, and, and, and taken over and, 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 and the looting began. Then in April, uh, last week actually, uh, or perhaps a week before, I can't, I can't remember. Within the last two, two weeks, the mine was finally sealed and the, the trespassers were thrown out. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, we've had 14 months since this particular mine in the Midlands was literally in, invaded. Over 80 people have been killed. Uh, at, at least 100 million U.S. has been looted from the mine, may, may, maybe double that, but at least a, 100 million. Then Friday night, the mine manager's home in Kui Kui was invaded by use wielding machetes. The, Group, or shall we say, uh, a gang, is Al Shabad, and the leader of this crime syndicate is none other than a certain Owen Nkube, known as Muda. Who, who is Muda? Well, Muda is the current Minister of State Security and the President's right-hand man. So. So this gives you a sense of there's a little problem. And this, this is a property rights problem. <laughs> you can't invade a mine 
and take $100 million worth of gold out of if you don't own the mine. So what to do? In November of 2017, I wrote a piece in the New York Times suggesting that Zimbabwe adopt a Singapore strategy. And the Singapore strategy was developed by Lee Kuan Yew in 1965 when Singapore became independent. Singapore was, by the way, poorer than Zimbabwe is today. It, it, it was really the, the, the pits in 1965. They were almost at the point of having a civil war, really a race war. It would have been a civil war. And Lee Kuan Yew came in, great man, great vision. And, and what was the vision? What's the Singapore strategy? Well, he established a currency board. That, that would, uh, by the way, if this was done in Zimbabwe, there, there would be a Zim dollar. The Zim dollar, if the anchor was the US dollar, the, the Zim dollar would just be a clone of the US dollar. It would work exactly like what we did in Bulgaria. The inflation would stop, and, and by the way, look at this. Look where inflation is. See that, that top? It isn't where the government says it's about 60%, that bottom line. It, it's, it's a little over 200% in reality. So they, they have a huge inflation problem. This is the second highest inflation in the world right now. The first spot is Venezuela. Venezuela's inflation rate is 88,558% per annum, 207% in Zimbabwe. So you put a currency board in. We're going through the Singapore strategy. Lee Kuan Yew refused to pass the begging bowl. This, this is always a trick. Even Barry fell into this trap. Foreign aid is a, is a killer. All the elites in Zimbabwe think if they just, the, the pot of gold is at the end of the rainbow is foreign aid. Somehow foreign aid is going to bail you out. It's never bailed anyone out. And in the case of Singapore, which by the way, in all those ratings that I gave you, the, Singapore is either one or two. So they've come from nothing in 1965 to one of the richest countries in the world. And in all those economic freedom, corruption, doing business, you name it, they're one or two, maybe three is the lowest possible score they get. They refused foreign aid. Three, minimize taxes and regulations. It's a nightmare in Zimbabwe. You, you can't move without going to some government bureaucrat to get a, a regulation approved or a stamp or, or 15 or 20 stamps. Four, ensure individual rights. This, this is back to the mine. This is, this is public safety. Public safety was big with Lee Kuan Yew in, in uh, Singapore. Uh, five, create a minimalist, high-quality, transparent government. Well, most of the budget in Zimbabwe is taken up with the civil service bleeding the, 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 the taxpayers. You need a, a, a minimalist government, high-quality people, first-class people with first-class wages. That was Lee Kuan Yew's line. Now, 
I, I can relay this to Professor Nkubi today. The, the finance minister in Singapore's annual base salary, without any fringes at all, 1.3 million US. So, so they get top people there. They're running a top flight show, and, and they pay them top wages. That's, that's how you get it done. Now, that's five, and I am winding up. Uh, Marion's been very liberal. He is a great classical liberal, as you all know. And the bottom item I don't have on here, six. What's six? Th these are all things that, that, that Zim should be doing. On the outside, sanctions should be dropped immediately. Sanctions don't work. Sanctions are for losers. The history of economic and financial sanctions is one failure after another, the production of all kinds of negative, unintended consequences. So step one, unilaterally, the, the US and the international community, to the extent the international community is involved, should drop sanctions and, and encourage, of course, the adoption of the Singapore strategy and, and stop talking about foreign aid. Foreign aid is not going to rescue Zimbabwe. End of story. Thank you. Um, I will <clears throat> introduce our last speaker, but before I do so, um, um, Steve and Barry, I, I will want to ask you, so uh, get ready for the Q&A, about the extent of the sanctions. It is my understanding that they are primarily personal sanctions intended to target members of the regime uh, rather than sanctions which impact the economy in general. So, I, and I know that there will be a lot of questions on, uh, on, on the role of the sanctions and how far do they go and, and so on. So we'll, we'll make sure that we have that conversation after our last speaker is done. Our last speaker is Jude Moore, who is a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development. He previously served as Liberia's Minister of Public Works with oversight over the construction and maintenance of public infrastructure from December 2014 to January 2018. Prior to that role, Moore served as the Deputy Chief of Staff to President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and uh, head of the President's Delivery Unit, PDU. As the head of PDU, his, his team monitored progress and drove delivery uh, of the public sector investment program in uh, Liberia, a program of over $1 billion in road, power, port infrastructure, and social programs in Liberia after the Civil War. At the Center for Global Development, Moore's research focuses um, uh, around financing of infrastructure in Africa and changing landscape of development finance on the continent. His research tracks the channels of private source of, of finance, the rise of China and its expanding role in Africa, and Africa's response to these changes. He currently serves on the board of advisors of the Masters of Science in Foreign Service program at the Georgetown University, and he holds a, a Bachelor of Science in Political Science from Berea College and an MS in Foreign Service from Georgetown University. With that, please help me welcome Judai Moore. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, so I'm not a Zimbabwe hand, 
Uh, I seek here I am from West Africa. Um, my uh, uh, research at the Center for Global Development also focuses on governance in general uh, on the continent. And so my, my comments today are largely in, in response to that. And with um, all of the, um, well, not so positive uh, things happening in Zimbabwe and what we've heard today, I just thought I would begin by highlighting what's happening in, in, in other places on the continent. Uh, Ghana is said to be, by the IMF, the fastest growing economy in the world in, in the coming year at about 7.6 to 8%. Um, and uh, Ghana also graduated from the IMF program. Ghana is no longer in an IMF program. We've also seen that uh, between 2010 and, and this year, about 21 African countries have been able to tap international financial markets issuing euro bonds, the most recent being Benin, small country, but even Benin's offer was oversubscribed. Benin uh, issued euro bonds for about $500 million and got about $3 billion in response. Uh, and the reason I'm highlighting this is one of the reasons Ghana has made these Ghana is the star that it is today, is uh, the opposite of some of the things that my, the previous uh, uh, speakers highlighted. One is the predictability of the regulatory environment. If you're going to do business in Ghana, it's pretty clear what the rules are and what, what the taxes are. And so this predictability encourages foreign uh, direct investment, it encourages even domestic inv investment, standard tax regime. Um, strong public financial management systems and uh, political stability. So in, in, for, my, for my comments today, I just wanted to highlight in terms of the, the role of uh, institutions, continental institutions, when actions by a state government are, are deemed to be unconstitutional. We've heard about everything um, that happened in Zimbabwe from um, uh, people who focus on Zimbabwe and just a cursory reading of what's happening in Zimbabwe, some of this thing, some of what they said would be evident. <clears throat> Why, in, in the course of all of those years, did we not see stronger uh, uh, action from SADC, uh, the South African Development Community, or from the African Union in terms of responding to this? Why have we not seen um, a, a stronger policy reform or a, a response to these issues in Zimbabwe. And I just thought I would just talk a little bit about why uh, um, we see this and what going forward in terms of resolving what's happening in Zimbabwe, what role uh, continental institutions can play, especially in the overall governance structure. I think the first thing is the, the AU uh, is, uh, it comes out of the Organization of African Unity that was formed to defend African governments to, uh, to uh, bring about uh, independence for African states and, de and defend the independence of African states from their colonial, former colonial masters. And so if that is in the DNA of an institution, then that institution very likely would be uh, more protective of its members than ordinarily it would be. But the, 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 the AU and, 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 and continental institutions Regardless of, of what was happening, we're caught in a very uh, tight position. There were sanctions from the US government on, on Zimbabwe. There was expulsion of Zimbabwe from the Commonwealth. There was uh, uh, the end of the IMF program. So there was an international effort to isolate Zimbabwe because of weak governance issues, as have been highlighted by my, by my fellow panelists. For the African Union and SADC, for African institutions, this saw that siding with the international community, regardless of the merit of that, would completely isolate Zimbabwe and 
it would um, undermine what was in the DNA of the institution. It is not as if they didn't get involved. Which brings us back to the second uh, problem. One was, so the first one is uh, an attempt not to be seen as isolating a member country like Zimbabwe. The second thing was <laughs> Robert Mugabe's role and the role of revolutionary parties across the continent, whether it's the ANC in South Africa, ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe, CCM in Tanzania, Frelimo, all of these parties have a history in resistance to colonialism. Robert Mugabe and the members of the ZANU-PF were seen as comrades. And so consequently, it, it wasn't as if um, some government by itself making decisions on, it was your comrade in another country. And so because of that, and then the, the structure of the African Union is such that the assembly, which has its heads of states and governments, presidents and prime ministers, actually are the ones who make the decisions on whether sanctions will be issued. It was almost impossible that out of that assembly would come any strong and stringent action on a member country like uh, Zimbabwe. So there was that. And then I, I like to highlight another issue, which I call the Barack Obama uh, red line problem. The, the, uh, President Obama, for those who are following, know that he uh, uh, said that the use of chemical weapons in Syria would be a red line. Well, the Syrian government did use chemical weapons, and the US government did nothing. That The red line issue was, what do you do then? In the case of Zimbabwe, should the African Union or SADC issue a stringent warning or take actions against the government? What then? The AU, very little trade actually occurs within African economies. So in terms of sanctions, it would be weak. The way the African Union and institutional organizations on the continent have gone about doing this is they play the reverse side of the big man, strong man, uh, big powerful man, big chief. So for example, they would deploy Otabo Mbeki to meet with, his, with the Zimbabwean leadership and try to urge the Zimbabwean leadership to go in the right direction. They might get Olishagong uh, uh, Obasanjo to meet with the Zimbabwean leadership and try to urge them to move in the right direction. But none of those actually work. The most substantive changes we've seen, the most substantive uh, uh, critique we've seen of African governments by African governments is through the Africa peer review mechanism. When you read the countries that have uh, uh, acceded to the APRM, when you read the reports that come out of there, the reports are pretty um, for documents coming out of the AU and AU system, they're pretty um, strong in terms of their criticism. There is a, a report on Algeria that if you read that report, you would think it was written by an, uh, maybe um, Amnesty International, but that's, that comes out of the APRM. Zimbabwe, of course, has no APRM uh, uh, engagement and there are no reports on Zimbabwe in terms of its APRM. The problem is strong critique Notwithstanding, there's been very little action on the part of the African Union in terms of its members, especially incumbent governments that are seen as being unconstitutional. So going forward, the question of sanctions remains uh, strongly debated on the continent. Civil society across Zimbabwe, opposition uh, parties across uh, 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 the continent, are this. Um, there is a dispute on whether sanctions are effective or not. It is difficult to imagine how else. 
a policy, a response policy that is all carrot and no stick is not going to work. Countries, individuals, institutions need to be able to know that if they perform in a certain manner, these are the carrots that are available. But when they don't, there will have to be sticks. Without balancing carrots and sticks, it's almost impossible that any of these issues are going to be resolved. And as Marion uh, uh, mentioned, the sanctions in Zimbabwe for now are seen to be largely targeting individuals, elite in Zimbabwe, and not general, the general population in Zimbabwe. The efficacy of, of sanctions are debatable. I know in other places in Africa, sanctions have worked to weaken the existing government. So if the intent is to weaken the existing government, maybe the sanctions would work. But sanctions, I, I would definitely agree with uh, uh, Professor Henke that sanctions that target the people of Zimbabwe ordinarily is not going to work. And in the long term, it's not going to help resolve the issues in Zimbabwe. However, it is almost impossible that without some sort, like I said, without some sort of coercive mechanism, without some sort of, of, of stick attached to the Zimbabwe project, to imagine how else the Zimbabwean government is going to um, make the kinds of changes and reforms that will make a Zimbabwe easily become, say, a, what I described from Ghana and other African countries that have been able to win the confidence of international financial markets and be able to solve Zimbabwe's problem. There is a saying in South Africa that if all the Zimbabweans were to go home, the South African economy will collapse. <laughs> right? <clears throat> because all across South Africa uh, is competent Zimbabweans who are occupying a lot of those positions for institutional organizations, whether it's the Af Afrexin Bank or the African Union, technical positions across those institutions is also Zimbabweans. So in terms of human capital, Zimbabwe is one of the most better endowed on the continent. But it's almost impossible for that human capital to be put to good use without the space in which to work. So in a conversation that we had before, as I wrap up, the question was, there are no questions about Mr. Nkube's competence or his intentions. It's clear that Mr. Nkube is one of the most competent people you could put in that position. And if anybody in Zimbabwe could help lead the economy out, it will be him. The question is, does he have the space to do what he needs to do? And if he doesn't have the space to do what he needs to do, then his competence is not going to be very useful. So how can Zimbabwe's neighbors, Zimbabwe, the international community, work so that people like Mr. Nkube, who want to be able to take Zimbabwe to the next step, are given the space in which to act and be able to achieve that? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So um, um, in, in, in Cato's spirit, we actually have a debate. We have a, uh, we have a divergence of opinion, which is, uh, which is actually wonderful, um, about uh, Western response to what is happening in Zimbabwe today. Uh, and I think that the most fundamental uh, point of, uh, of, of diversion between the speakers was on the subject of sanctions. So before I'm going to turn it over to, to Q&A and the audience at large, I'm going to give one minute to each of the speakers, starting with Steve, to explain precisely where does the, uh, what sanctions are you talking about, where does the harm come from? But, but I, I will insist on, on short responses. Thank you. I think it's on, yeah. Okay. Uh, to the extent that sanctions are issued by a sovereign against an individual, this is the, the, the individual argument, 
th these, these are really counterproductive because if an individual has been involved in a criminal activity, they should be prosecuted with all, all might of criminal justice. It has nothing to do with sanctions issued by a sovereign because that, that starts bundling in all kinds of other things and it implies that the sovereign issuing the sanctions on an individual in Zimbabwe, for example, is, is hostile to Zimbabwe. So, so it's sovereign to sovereign. It, it, it's, it, it, the, forget the individual thing. It, it's viewed as an attack on Zimbabwe, even if it's very isolated on one in, individual in particular. There's also uh, in Zimbabwe the, just a hangover of uh, the sanctions that are more generally have been imposed on the Mugabe regime. So, so that's a, another cloud going over there. Just clean, clean them all up as far as the individuals. Get, get the inter international uh, uh, police force after whoever it is that's uh, causing the uh, criminal activity. And, and or uh, put as much diplomatic pressure on as possible to clean up the domestic criminality going on. I, I mentioned okay. this, so mine, a, this mine is unbelievable, you know. So, so it's a diplomatic thing. It, it, uh, it poisons the well, uh, however you want to put it. But you are not actually blaming the problems in Zimbabwe on international sanctions. You are not implying that they had uh, fundamentally... Uh, undermine the economic growth no, in the I, country. No, I, I think I think the, the the Zimbabwe situation is is home homegrown, okay. made made at home. There's no question about it. The sanctions just aggravate because the sanctions, in fact, are an excuse. They entrench all the bad guys in Zimbabwe because they always can say it's the outsider who's causing all of this, and it's the outsider who's the enemy. That that's why okay. you've got to clean the deck and get, right. get rid of them. Right. My perspective, and I'm not at variance with Steve at all on this, and whether they have aid or not, but here's the question about American sanctions. That's really the key. It's the International Monetary Fund. The International Monetary Fund can either wave a red flag or a green flag. Without IMF approval, and the Americans block it, as I explained, there cannot be a restructuring of the debt, which is clearly on Mr. Nkube's agenda. There cannot be any kind of private lending into Zimbabwe because they wait for an IMF approval. So that's the key. Whether there's money coming from the IMF is relatively unimportant at this stage. But those Zidera measures prevent the United States from supporting any kind of help for Zimbabwe beyond a staff monitor program, which means no money, just advice and consultation. I want to pay tribute to Professor Nkube. You've honored us by listening to our discussion, by coming here. He and I first met when he was a professor in the business school at University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. He became the chief economist at the, at the African Development Bank, and he is the best hope, the best thing that's happened in Zimbabwe since November 2017, so thank you. All right. Now Let's, uh, let's turn it over to our last uh, speaker. And, uh, Judah, do you want to opine on, yeah, just, on these sanctions? Just, just, just quickly, uh, the, the, the tools of international foreign policy making, the tools of international affairs are limited, and some are really blunt. Sanctions are just simply one of them. The question I have 
is in response to what is happening in Zimbabwe. If there is a, a, a process of, of basically bringing in Zimbabwe out of the cold and, and, and reincorporating Zimbabwe so that the Zimbabwean economy grows, so that Zimbabwe is able to retain its, re regain its place in, in Africa in terms of its economy. So that policy, whatever it is, is going to have to have inducements and some sort of uh, stick, for, for no, way, no better word to call it, it's carrots and stick. So what else is available? Now, obviously, you do not want sanctions that target the Zimbabwean economy writ large because that's only going to aggravate the problem and worsen the condition of, of ordinary Zimbabweans. But um, in instances where if there is a way to induce the behavior of actors in Zimbabwe um, outside sanctions, then I'm open to what those are. I just don't know what they are. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll open to Q&A. We have uh, about 20 minutes left. Um, I will call upon you, and if you would please uh, raise your hand um, and wait for the mic to come to you, and then uh, just tell us uh, your name and who your pay paymaster is, um, and please state your question in a form of a question. Uh, so we'll first go to that gentleman over there. Hi, Doug Brooks. Former teacher at the at Kambazuba Township in Harare back in the 1980s, uh, now working with the uh, uh, International Stability Operations Association. Um, my question is, is, you know, I kind of agree that we should drop the sanctions, but the big issue in Zimbabwe, Mr. Moore sort of uh, addressed this early on, was that uh, there's a political situation that is that is so uh, horrendous that you really cannot guarantee that the rule of law will apply. Um, you have a, a, a leader of the country that really does not have the confidence of the population, and so any investor would have to keep that in mind, that essentially things could change very, very radically and drastically overnight. And it just seems that even the sanctions, although it might help dropping the sanctions, still going to run into some huge issues in terms of getting investment. So I'd be interested in the comments. If yeah, anybody my, wants to take to, to, Doug, to repeat my specific but make it more general on sanctions. If you look at the history of sanctions, and I, I've studied sanctions and, and had my assistants helping me with this for, for years, the, the record, there are almost never any sanctions that actually achieve their stated desired objective or goal. And, and one thing that is replete with all these sanctions there, there are all kinds of unintended consequences, by the way, and they're almost all negative vis-a-vis -vis the imposer of the sanctions. <laughs> so saying that there's all kinds of blowback coming, and, and it's very hard to predict. The one thing that is predictable, and you can see this going on in Venezuela right now, uh, and that is you put the sanctions on and, and, uh, or, or Iran, uh, any place you go, and, and, and they just dig in. In other words, sanctions are an act of war. It's, it's like a siege. And, and, uh, and uh, as far as I know, in international law, sieges are, are, are illegal in international law. N never mind, the sanctions come, and, and, and look at Venezuela. It, the sanctions being put on by the U.S., it makes Maduro look good because he said all the time the U.S. Is, is at war with us. 
The reason the economy is going down is because of the U.S. and sanctions. Of course, we know the socialist chavismo policies they have are the reasons this economy is going down. Never mind, his base believes it's because the war with the United States has caused them to go down. So the, the record is just terrible, unbelievably bad. Now, let me, let me just give one little thing that Bob Mandel, Nobel laureate, a good friend of mine, pointed out to me something called the Afghan effect. So in the Afghan effect, he, he uses this to illustrate everything in the international economy, everything's connected to everything else. There, there's nothing that's disconnected. We're, we're all connected. And the, so Mandel said, the Afghan effect, in 1979, the, the Russians go into Afghanistan. Of course, Brzezinski, one of the big elites in Washington, was the national security advisor of President Carter. He, he said, we have to put sanctions on Russia for doing being bad. And the sanctions were that we were going to put an embargo on shipping grain from the United States to Russia at the time. And, and that was supposed to be, that was going to hurt Russia, or, or then the Soviet Union, by the way. A little slip there. Um, so what happened? The Afghan effect. And that is, right away, the Soviets went to Argentina. They, they signed a great deal for grain. The, the American farmers got screwed because they couldn't send, they couldn't abide by the contracts they already had with the Soviets. And the blowback effect, the, the unintended consequence. The junta was in power in Argentina at the time. It was a huge economic boom that, that was created in Argentina, supposedly our enemies at the time, the junta, because of the sanctions. So, so that's the Afghan effect. Everything is connected to everything else. You, you, All right. Thank you. Do we have any other questions? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, you. Clark Ellis, I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. I would like to have a little more discussion about foreign aid. Foreign aid, I think there are two basic types of foreign aid. First, there would be humanitarian assistance, such as I think now for Mozambique and Zimbabwe after a tremendous natural disaster, such as the tropical cyclone that hit. And I think it's hard to argue against that. With regard to the other type of aid is development assistance. And I certainly would agree that there have been a number of cases where that has not worked out. But if you look at Taiwan and the Republic of Korea, the foreign assistance that we gave to them in the 1950s and the 60s worked out pretty well. They helped those countries develop basic infrastructure, recover from a war, for the case of, of South Korea, and have enabled them to become democratic, very prosperous uh, economies. And yet, I think that you can, they seem to have been grateful for that assistance, and I think it was positive. Doesn't mean it's worked everywhere, but I think if you have proper uh, governmental situation, uh, with enough honesty and integrity in the government that foreign development aid can be successful. 
I'll tackle that. I think that um, foreign assistance is uh, controversial. I'm uh, persuaded by Ms. Moyo from Zambia, who argues very strongly against foreign assistance because countries that are recipients become aid dependent. And whether aid is benefiting the people is, again, controversial. I don't quarrel with what you say about Taiwan and other countries. Whether aid to Zimbabwe from the United States or from Europe would be successful, I think foreign investment is far more powerful. I, and I would just uh, add to that. I think uh, for ordinary people in Zimbabwe, um, the idea that somehow, uh, um, you know, Ms. Moyo's point that aid uh, is, is destructive, we would wait on that principle why people go hungry, people are sick and can't get medicines, and the idea of, I, I definitely do not agree with that. I think in, in instances where people are suffering, in instances where people can't be assisted, assisted, foreign aid definitely should be. And it depends on how a country, on how a country uses the foreign aid that comes to them. Uh, in, the, in the examples the examples you gave, um, in 1957, the U.S. created um, an institution called a Development Loan Fund that actually helped um, with uh, road building in Taiwan, providing um, uh, technical assistance in terms of agricultural ex extension services that actually help grow the, the, the agriculture sector in, in, in Taiwan. So I think uh, foreign aid has this point. I just wanted to go back quickly to the, um, to the uh, uh, sanctions piece. I think... Uh, it was Secretary of State, the Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin over the, over the weekend said that the U.S. was open to uh, reverse uh, uh, actions if they didn't keep up their end, if the U.S. doesn't keep up its end of the bargain, the, the agreement, the bilateral agreement that they're negotiating with China. So if there were a program in Zimbabwe with specific actions that are required of the Zimbabwean governments, with certain privileges that were extended to Zimbabwe, privileges that could be withdrawn if Zimbabwe doesn't keep up its end of the bargain. And the sanctions, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the way they've been done before. I think I would just go back to say that this thing where unless Zimbabwe does one, two, three, four, five, there will be no international engagement with Zimbabwe at all, I think that's just counterproductive. I think a program with Zimbabwe that has specific um, uh, deliverables from the Zimbabwean government so that certain privileges are withdrawn if Zimbabwe doesn't keep up with that, I think that will work. The, the, uh, on, back to the, uh, the point about humanitarian aid, of course, I think it's very hard to get anyone to disagree with humanitarian aid. On, on that, this can be private as well as public. I, I'm on the board of directors of something called RTM, which is a shall we say, it's in the so-called cryptocurrency space. Uh, and, and I just learned last night that we, uh, I've, I've been leading a, a campaign and we've just raised $100,000 that we'll be distributing to needy children in Zimbabwe. Now, that's humanitarian. It's private, though. It's not, we're, we're, we're doing it privately. We're not, not a, it's not a public thing. So... So you can do things privately, publicly, humanitarian. You know, who, who in the world can put thumbs down for humanitarian aid? The development assistance issue that you raise uh, is interesting because in, in every, everything in life, there, there's a distribution from, from, <laughs> from low to high. 
and, and you've, you've taken a, a couple of examples out on the tail of the distribution and says, oh, development aid works. Well, the thing is, on average, it, it is a huge failure. You get recidivism. It's always the same guys coming back to the trough over and over and over again. Now, they're coming back because it doesn't work. <laughs> And, and and so the average is a disaster. And if you look at the, the you know kind of bell-shaped distribution, most of the space under there is is all negative. Now you've given a couple uh, on the positive side, uh, so much the better. But you got to look at the whole distribution when you're looking at these programs. And and the record is very poor for foreign aid. I I've, I've written a paper on on foreign aid back uh, about. 10, ten uh, years ago, I'd be very interested in learning more about the South Korean example. What I do know is that until 1970, thereabouts, uh, South Korean and North Korean incomes per capita were basically on an equal level. And it was in the 1970s when you do have a change in regime and a fundamental opening uh, to the rest of the world, especially when it comes to trade and uh, domestic economic reforms, that you have suddenly this widening differentiation between incomes in the two uh, Koreas, but until 1970, I don't really see much of a uh, uh, much much of a much of a difference. So I would be very interested to know when exactly uh, did the U.S. supply aid and how much. Um, Carol. Oh yes, yeah, sure. Uh, actually, let me take the lady first, and then we'll we'll get to the. Thank you, Marion. Um, I'm Carol Boudreau from Landessa. Landessa is an international NGO that works on property and land rights around the world. Um, several of the panelists pointed out the need for the government to address weaknesses in the property rights and land rights system in the country. Um, I would actually like to sound a positive note. Uh, it's been my experience over the last year and a half that the government has been making um, some progress on this front and uh, needs more progress to be made for sure, but is uh, taking seriously, I think, the challenge around Number one, inventorying agricultural lands. Number two, thinking about how these lands can be returned to or redistributed to people who need access to these lands. Number three, thinking about ways to create a reasonable dispute resolution system so that people won't be stuck in endless disputes uh, over return of land or reallocation of land. But it doesn't mean that the government does not need to make a very firm, very vocal, credible commitment, credible commitment to protecting the length of agricultural leaseholds. This is absolutely essential to recognizing and securing the rights of smallholder farmers, particularly I would say women smallholders who are, who are managing lands after husbands have left to go to South Africa or migrated elsewhere, they're left behind. And they can be an engine for agricultural regeneration and regrowth if you're able to protect their rights and recognize those under the law. And then thirdly, finding a, a really credible way again to tie agricultural land holdings to access to credit. This is also especially important for women. Some of the regulations I've seen on this point make it create barriers that would be difficult for women to overcome. So I think if the government can focus on some of those issues, you actually do have the opportunity to see some good growth in the country and once again become a breadbasket. Thank you. 
Well, I think it's quite appropriate that we are sitting in the Hyag Auditorium because spontaneously uh, we have ended up in the audience with uh, one of the world's uh, top authorities on land rights, Carol Boudreau, and the Zimbabwean finance minister. So uh, let's, uh, l l let me give uh, the microphone to the Zimbabwean uh, finance minister. Maybe you can reflect on what um, Ms. Boudreau was saying, but also if you have a question, uh, please go ahead and ask it. Thank you very much. Let me begin by really expressing my appreciation for the discussion on Zimbabwe and shining the torch on Zimbabwe uh, the, the, this morning. In fact, when the ambassador told me that there was such a session, then I met Mr. Wood when we had Brookings the other day. I said, I, I'm not, I don't want to be left out. I better go and join in and uh, <laughs> listen. And I've listened very carefully. Uh, some valid points being made, but also the, I think there's need for some up, uh, updates. Let me just begin by, uh, by saying that we are very serious about reforms. Very both economic reforms and institutional reforms. And I understand that the two are tied at the hip. And, and any, any economic reformer working with the Zimbabwe situation should quickly realize that we cannot succeed with economic reforms without the institutional reforms. It's as simple as that. That's the first point. So we've got a blueprint called the Transitional Stabilization Program which is really, uh, that's the blueprint that I launched on the 4th of October last year to, to really uh, capture the, the reform agenda, both institutional and economic reforms. Now, now, now so, so we're very serious about this. So there's no, I think, question about perhaps the absence of political will so far to walk that, that, that path. Certainly it's not been benign my experience. That's my first comment. The second co comment is perhaps partly comment, partly question. Uh, uh, now, let me, let me make the comment first. Uh, around sanctions, and I agree with Professor Hank, uh, 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 with Wood, and, uh, and more, and everyone, who is saying that basically sanctions are not working. Sanctions are a blunt instrument that is actually impoverishing people. Let me tell you what has happened. Although they are, they are legally targeted, actually their impact is widespread. Mm. Because, because of the KYC, you don't know whether the, the bank that you're going to have a credit line with will end up financing a company that is linked to an individual on sanctions. You don't know. So you, you say, no, so we'll stop lending to Zimbabwe banks and you cut off the credit. So as a result, Zimbabwe banks have lost uh, at least 80 uh, credit line relationships, banking relationships over the last uh, five years because of the, the sanctions issue, which had been re-established, re re by the way, during the unity government. Things, things did thaw, those are the facts. But now it, it, that is reversed. So, so what that does, so you find that therefore the capital starvation in Zimbabwe is not to the center. I'm not looking for money for the Zimbabwe government when I'm here. No, I'm actually running a surplus. I'm running a surplus. I'm looking for resources for the private sector. So we, what we are looking for is private sector credit uh, for Zimbabwe uh, uh, so that we can create jobs, uh, uh, you know, look after shareholders. It's, it's not for the government. The government issue really is about arrears clearance, which is a very specific issue uh, for Zimbabwe to, to come good as a government in terms of the IFDB and World Bank, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, where we are in arrears to the tune of uh, uh, together uh, uh, one point, uh, no, almost two billion actually. So, 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 but that's a specific issue which we want to overcome, but really the issue is, is private sector credit, which is hurting everyone. 
Then perhaps a comment from uh, from the, the, the four areas. Uh, let's uh, make this the last comment because we'll have to move on. But please, do go on, ahead. On yeah. property rights, uh, thank you for these comments. I'll get your card and, uh, in terms of the farming sector. We are serious about compensating farmers. I've set aside 58 million from last year's budget. We will compensate them. I've requested their names. All the, the elderly, vulnerable farmers will pay them one by one all in the next two months. Again, in the next two months, we'll finalize our, our negotiations with the, with the farmers for the global figure for overall compensation. I expect that we'll sign this agreement by end of June. Uh, uh, we, they've already given me a figure. I know the figure. We're just finalizing the government evaluations. Then we negotiate, come up with the global figure, and then begin the compensation uh, process. That's really speaking to, to property rights. On the currency, uh, um, uh, uh, Professor Hank, you are using the no inflation. You are using the implied all mutual rate. There's a methodological challenge. I think reflect on it. You see, because you are using an equity price, it has got an inbuilt premium. As you know, <laughs> well, I used to be a finance professor, and my, my job was to analyze these things. Um, so, so, because the price is an equity risk premium, it is distorting your sense of of with inflation measurement. Mm. Just reflect on it. Maybe you, I think you need to work on that. But, but for me, I welcome the, your shining the torch on inflation as an issue, regardless of its level. It also keeps me awake at night. So I've, I've no issue with that. Right. But on the fiscal budget, on the hard fiscal constraint, trust me, I'm running a surplus. I'm serious about fiscal discipline. We'll keep you to that. Money supply is not growing. <laughs> All right. It's not growing. So, Thank so you very much. I think things are, are, are going the, the, the right way. And, 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 and certainly, thank you for the conversation uh, from everyone. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I thank you. I thank you very much for uh, providing that comment. And I think uh, we've learned uh, some new things from you. I really appreciate it. Um, I think that uh, at a time when uh, in DC people uh, talk a lot about uh, um, different sides not talking to each other and there being a lot of uh, hot air being blown all over the city. I think that we have shown that we can get together, address very important subjects that impact the, the livelihoods of uh, millions of people and do it in a civil way, even when we disagree. With that, I want to thank you all. Uh, please join us for lunch upstairs and uh, do come and join us at Cato in the future. Thank you. Bravo. Bravo.